0: where affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions this week clinical psychologist author and parent dr. Robert Nassif from Philadelphia joins us he is a parent of an autistic adult son he has done numerous workshops with fathers and uh, has worked in the Middle East and Southeast Asia with families Of children and adults with autism and developmental differences Um, and that's what his practice in Philadelphia revolves around he's done work with Stephen Shore an adult self-advocate and he is well known in this area of ambiguous loss and that is our topic for today and we're gonna get into what that means I want to welcome you uh, Dr. Robert Nassif welcome
1: thanks Daria
0: Um, I first heard about you in one of my ICDL courses, the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning, where I was taking my certificate courses in the developmental individual differences relationship-based model, DIR, DIR floor time. And it was one of these videos that was about supporting fathers. And I understand you did start out doing support groups for fathers. And you had a very um, a very profound experience when your own son was diagnosed with autism, and that sort of kicked the ball rolling. Were you already a psychologist at that time?
1: And no I was a teacher at that time. I, okay. I was being uh, English and developmental reading in a two-year college.
0: And then did uh, the... Did your experience with your son inspire you to become a psychologist or was that sort of parallel
1: well no that he had a lot to do with it because you know in the beginning uh i just felt so alone in, in in terms of the whole experience and uh you know was looking for support and and i'd always enjoyed working with kids and so Especially in the beginning, you know, I thought I could fix him, so to speak. I thought I could make this all better. And uh, that wasn't to be. Uh, so, you know, I had wanted to pursue my education and you know, I wound up uh, getting my doctorate in psychology uh, and, and writing my dissertation on how families uh, were able to cope with uh, children with special needs. developmental differences
0: and the reason I really wanted to invite you on the podcast and I thank you very much for taking the time to be with us is that you know this is quite an experience that is now being shared because of the internet but you know there have been autistic kids you know always and these experiences and your son is now in his 30s these experiences were very isolating because people didn't know what autism was. They didn't know what was going on, what to expect. And when your child is showing different developmental path, it's a little bit scary and frightening for parents. And now with the internet, there's so many ways to find out about information and support. But even still, there's still this um, mad rush of, urgency when your child gets diagnosed that something's wrong a something's wrong b i need to fix it and c it has to be done as soon as possible and we we know now from self-advocates that um there's a lot of things that happen that we misunderstand as parents because of the different developmental trajectory that our children um take that things that we think of as deficits might not be deficits, they're just differences. And that alone is really hard for some parents to wrap their head around. Well, I don't understand why my, my kid is screaming his head off or banging his head or, or doing different kinds of things. And I I loved uh, one of the videos, I and I will share links to some of the links you shared with me, where you have this series of questions that you say to parents that you first consult with? Um, and did you wanna talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, sure. Um, and and I think even even though there's much more awareness of autism now than there was in the 80s when my son was little, that people still have the same questions and the same kind of reactions that I had. And, and by the way, my son's gonna be 40 in November.
0: Wow. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I've uh, I'm quite at peace relatively with his autism, but I'm having a little hard time with his fortieth birthday, frankly. Um, so I'm just sharing that um, it's been a long time. So, so you know, pe- people still ask, like, well, what caused this? Uh, uh, is it in my genes? Was it in the vaccines? Is it in the drinking water? And And they ask, you know, what's the future gonna be like? Is this gonna go away? Will will my child ever be independent? Will my child have relationships and friendships? Um, You know, will my child have a job? Will my child live independently? All these questions just fast forward in your mind uh, at the time of diagnosis. Despite all the information, when it's you, it's like a thousand percent. Like right now it is about one and a half percent in the developed countries where we have fairly accessible healthcare. It's about one and a half percent and we have reason to believe that's pretty much the global average where screening and diagnosis is available. So the, so often, you know, when I'm talking to parents either in a workshop or, or in my office uh, in this setting, uh, where I am today, uh, I I'm start with simple things like, what was it like when you held your baby for the first time? Because um, just I, I, I want people to be in touch with that excitement and that love that is still there. This is still the same child they held for the first time that they were so excited about. And then, you know, what's your story? What did you go through to get to the diagnosis? And And that varies a lot and for some people it's a total shock because the baby or the toddler was developing normally and they're they're really just shocked and, and somewhat uh, bereaved because uh, their dream of a perfect child's out the window. Um, and sometimes people are actually relieved because they've known something's been wrong but they don't know what it is and now they have a name for it and they have a way to do something about it. So, so there's really like a spectrum of reactions to the autism spectrum. Uh, and I think the DIR floor time model, you know, applies in the sense of we need to start where the parents are at, where the siblings are at, where's the mom at, where's the dad at, you know, these are different, you know, different views of the same uh, child, and it's all important. Uh, we have to take everyone's viewpoint and everyone's feelings into account. And And
0: I, oh, go ahead.
1: So, so that, you know, that's where I start. And then like, well, what's it like today? Um, what's autism mean about your child and about you? What's the meaning of this word to you? Not the dictionary definition. What's it mean to you? And, you know, Tell me what you enjoy doing with your child tell me what a good day is like um like i'll focus on those things before we get to the challenges to kind of set the table for a discussion about how to how do we make a difference with our child because really that's what everybody wants to know how to make a difference
0: and i love that that is the one main point that you highlight over and over again. Um, we all have this unwavering love for our children and, and we want them to be happy. And I think the reason why we think instead of, oh, I have a child that's a little bit different. Instead, we think, oh, something's wrong or what's, um, what can I fix is because of the challenges that are associated with it. So the excessive screaming, the, um, You know, as your child gets older, not responding to their name, um, throwing items, you know, refusing to eat, (laughs) all of these things that, uh, neurotypical kids also may not do, but having that lack of communication between you and your child is, is really scary for parents when you see your friends' kids or your nephews and nieces or, or kids that you used to babysit or teach, being able to communicate at such young ages, pre-verbally and then verbally, and um, do you want to speak a little bit about your experience with that since your son is still nonverbal, Or wow. I believe that you, you used a different term. Um,
1: non-speaking.
0: Non-speaking.
1: So... So there's, you know, sort, there's wide variation in autism and just just to, you know, fill people in, my son stopped talking around 18 months and he never started again. And um, so he's non-speaking and he has a severe intellectual disability. So he's actually changed very little since he's a little boy. And, you know, he still learns a few things. Uh, and but but his life's very limited and he lives in a group home he goes to a day program um you know and of course this was like my worst nightmare when when he was a toddler and stopped speaking but what i've come to know is that he's happy almost all the time he's autistic absolutely all the time and uh but he's happy and uh you know, that that gives me comfort and um, he's glad to see me and, um, you know, he's taught me a lot. when he was, When he was young, like I want to say the first time I held him, you know, I wanted to be a better version of my father and I wanted him to be a better version of me. Now, what's really happened is he is who he is. And he's helped me be a better version of myself. And that's, you know, that's been transformational. And I've, you know, from, you know, in in my professional work, that's what I want to help people to accept and love the child they actually have, no matter if they're a little different or a lot different, and to be the best versions of themselves and have the best version of their family that they could possibly have. In that way we can have a meaningful and and productive life you know when we you know sort of let go of uh, what the typical or the normal and embrace the neurodiversity which really describes the human condition
0: so there's three different tangents I can see us going off on here (laughs) and um, yeah the letting go of what you thought. I've thought a lot about that because the experience with my own son, of course, my my son was, we thought, typically developing until 28 months old and then suffered seizures and severe brain inflammation, was hospitalized for four months. And in the period of recovering from that severe brain damage, uh, was diagnosed with autism. Having gone through the DIR certificate courses, I now see that there were signs he serious he definitely had sensory issues from birth and there were signs of you know a little bit less robust joint attention even before his brain inflammation you know he he was born the way he is and maybe his brain injury exacerbated some of the symptoms but what i kept thinking about in the beginning was it is so hard to get over the why 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 did this happen why did this happen why 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 and I just try and now think of it in a different way like you know oh what if he would have been blah 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 blah. like the old way of thinking when you panic is I see little boys playing little league oh what if what if my son were neurotypical and he'd be playing baseball right now that really tell me if you agree is is not uh different from thinking Oh, what if I had had a girl, and she was in ballet class? Guess what? I didn't have a girl. Or what if I lived in France and my son spoke French? Oh, I don't live in France. He doesn't speak French. So what a silly thought. And and I don't want to go on the path of beating yourself up for feeling what you feel. You got to validate what you feel. I feel sadness when I see little boys age ten playing little league and doing these things because that's what we did when we were kids me and my brother and it's sad to think my son can't have that same experience and i get emotional even talking about it right now and the main thing is that's not what happened and i have this beautiful child right in front of me that i love so much i'll let you talk for a second while i overcome
1: Ah, <laughs> uh, yes so what you know what's important here is that it's just human to think about what might have been you know and i certainly still think of that sometimes what might have been
0: yep.
1: and sometimes it's more emotional than others and that that's just human for parents but what's important what I've come to see is that too much emphasis on that gets in the way of the relationship with our child and I'm not saying that your feelings do I I don't think they do from our right right. but what the self-advocates tell us like Jim Sinclair has a great essay and uh I'll send you the link called don't mourn for us and what he's saying is, you know, the grief that parents have over the stress that they go through, over not having the child they wished for and dreamed of is okay. But we, we individuals with autism, we're not mourning. So don't mourn for us. Step up and do your job, kind of thing. And and I think I, I learned this pretty clearly. You know, from the floor time and DIR conferences that I went to, when my son was much younger, that parent and and I learned it in developmental literature of all kinds that kids, all kids, need enthusiastic, positive, energetic parents to help them grow. So as but as parents, this grief can get in the way. So we need support. We need support from each other. We need support from the professionals working with our kids. Our our feelings do make sense. Our reality is difficult. And you talked about some of this, you know, really challenging behavior problems, and some of those are traumatizing. Seizures are traumatizing. We can go through life on edge, like waiting for the next one, or, you know, kind of hypervigilant. So so parents of children with, you know, more significant autism, let me just use that word, often live uh, with a certain amount of trauma. But there's also post-traumatic growth, the growth that we have dealing in life with difficult experiences. It's not all bad that we have difficult experiences. We can grow through them. But, you know, that being said, I wish it was easier for you, for myself, for so many others. And and one of the things we're dealing with now is, and and it's a good thing that there's so many articulate self-advocates who are helping us understand autism, helping us, uh, understand so much about how they experience the world. But in many cases, autism is not disabling, but in some cases it is disabling. And that's a different kind of experience. My son's autism is disabling. I wish it wasn't, but it is. Uh, you know, some of the kids in my practice and adults with autism that I've diagnosed, uh, they're not disabled, but they have significant challenges and that's what we work on. But, you know, many people with autism can live and, and earn a living and be in relationship with others and be independent um, and some need support through, a life, through the lifetime but have a lot of abilities. Uh, you know, there's so many variations. You know, the, the diagnosis of autism uh, in terms of social and communication uh, challenges and, and repetitive activities and sensory differences, that's like the tip of the iceberg. What's beneath the surface is all the individual differences that we come to understand over time.
0: Yeah, and, and really it is a multi-step process. And one of the things that I loved in your videos is that you said we celebrate inch stones instead of milestones. <laughs> and that's truly been my experience. Um, th- there's, there's these parallel paths, our children developing, uh, they are who they are, they're beautiful selves that they are. And then there's us parenting them. And then there's us dealing with our own um, differing expectations that we had that we just discussed. And, you know, every time our child has some kind of developmental leap, that is really experiencing the same thing that all parents experience. It's just on a different timeline and looks differently. And it's, it really is a process that takes parents differing amounts of time. Like you said, there's a spectrum of parent experiences, but maybe... I felt traumatized for uh, about four years just dealing with the fact that my son had such a traumatic injury, a brain injury that left him with severe brain damage. But then also all the stuff that we talked about, um, differing expectations, you know, which brings the whole other gamut. Um, getting to know your child, getting to know what they need, trying to find supports that aren't what's the word, uh, insulting to your child's developmental process. Uh, I had, you know, so many professionals tell me things that didn't sit well with me. Like, I don't want my child to be forced to sit at a table doing menial tasks to learn certain skills. And that's what drew me to DIR floor time. Uh, finding the right school, preschool, finding the right school where you know, that their best will be seen and nourished. (laughs) And so there's so many things going on uh, that as parents we're really responsible for doing, but like you said, we can't do if we're debilitated by this sense of grief or ambiguous loss that you call it. Um, So that, that for sure is something I see parents struggling with, that won't happen overnight. And if parents listening have just got a diagnosis and they feel depressed hearing <laughs> about different stories, um, it give yourself a chance to absorb everything and take it day by day and celebrate inchstones. And nobody knows the future of your child. Nobody knows what their developmental potential is. And all we can do is, is, foster the right conditions for them. And in order to do that, we need to be, you know, we need to pull our pull our stuff together.
1: <laughs> yeah, we just, we need to show up and do our best. So, so let me talk about this ambiguous loss concept a bit. You know, um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross defined the stages of grief, and that's often been applied to having a child with developmental challenges of different sorts. But, but the problem with that is her model of denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and, and acceptance was formulated based on her work with people in end-stage cancer. Who, and, and it's their acceptance of their death that the five steps are about. So our children did not die. They are very much alive. They are very spirited. And Um, so we're not accepting their death, right? Our our forward process is accepting their difference and loving them as they are. Mm -hmm. Helping them be who they can be, changing the changeable and letting go of the rest. Now, that's not easy. So, it's ambiguous, it's uncertain. Some kids go through early challenges and, and go on and develop by leaps and bounds, others develop very slowly, and we don't know what the future's gonna hold. That's the ambiguous part. There's an ambiguous loss. The child isn't the child we expected. Uh, it might be kind of like, um, you have an, an elderly relative with dementia, and it's uncertain you know, who they're going to be the next time you see them. Where are they going to remember you? Are they going to uh, be able to have a conversation about the present or, or what's going on? It's ambiguous, you know, and you feel a sense of loss, but your loved one is still there and you still love them. Uh, and and so ambiguous loss was developed, this concept by Pauline Boss and, and others, um, to... To talk about these really, you know, kind of vague losses where the person lives, uh, and is, you know, is very much alive but different, and and we don't know the future, so we have to hold possibility and and reality and find some kind of balance. And so acceptance has to do with changing the changeable and letting go of the rest. This isn't just resignation, give up. My kid's on the spectrum. Oh well. You know, I'm going to be sad the rest of my life. My kid will be miserable. They'll be disabled. You know, no, it's not that at all.
0: Um, I mean, but, let's look at Greta.
1: <laughs> oh, wow. What an inspiration. A total inspiration that that uh, uh, a teenage girl could be so singularly, singularly focused on, on what's happening to our planet and inspiring people. Now... On the one hand, she's very inspiring. On the other hand, you know, it doesn't mean everybody on the spectrum is gonna be a Greta Thunberg, you know, but it really shows the contributions that uh, autistic people can make uh, to the world uh, in all sorts of ways, big and small. And she is amazing and inspiring, uh, no doubt, I mean. And she's calling us all out from world leaders to you know generations of adults who have dropped the ball. Like just, just wonderful what, what she's doing for us.
0: And there are so many of her out there. And um,
1: But was- they're not all they're not all engaged the way she is. Mm-hmm. A lot of bright young adults and, and middle-aged adults with autism, but 80% are unemployed or underemployed. 70% or more have clinical depression. 60% or more have clinical levels of anxiety. We have a long way to go to meet the needs of autistic adults.
0: And while we're talking about our own experiences as parents, the other thing that uh, we find ourselves confronted with is the perception of others. So whenever I'll meet new people or, um, yeah, I guess is when you're meeting new people or seeing people you haven't seen in a while. Oh, and I have an autistic son. Usually the reaction is not, Oh, that's nice or whatever. It's more something like, Oh, that must be hard. Or, Oh, I'm so sorry. Or, you know, some sort of, um, it is a type of, uh, you know, assuming that it's filled with grief. So it's not just our own perception of grief, but then we have to then deal with this feeling of judgment and, um, pity pity from other people that our children don't, like you said, don't mourn for us. Don't pity me. I am who I am. Um, we're at the point now where we, we just think our son is the greatest thing in the world and, and, you know, other people, a lot of them see that when they meet him, and Mm -hmm. they smile, and then other people will say, oh, you know, will he be functional? Or um, how's he doing? Oh, he seems to have improved a lot, (laughs) which really is just, yeah, he's growing just like any other kid. Um, But that is another, I see it as almost this extra burden that, you know, the parents don't need, like, we're already dealing with our own, um, ways to do the best for our child. And then we've got all these other people giving us the pity and the, and, you know, everybody will say, Oh, Oh, I, I found this article, or I know this thing, like to help you, like they, they really want to help and connect. So they think of anything autistic they've heard about and send it to you, which is very thoughtful, but at the same time, it's like, you know, it's okay. I already know about all these things. Or, you know, if I, if, you know, (laughs) it's, it's, uh, um, with that kind of thing. I know other parents that aren't. They, they get really uh, offended by that.
1: Yeah, it's, it's. I mean, I think it was a long time before people stopped sending me um, articles and things. I mean, I think it took until I had written a book or two and they finally, people finally figured out, like, I, I knew enough <laughs> and, and my son was who he, he is, is who he is. Um. So, but there's a real camaraderie that comes in the community of, of parents, at, you know, as we can share the progress our kids are making, the, the bright moments, uh, you know, the things we enjoy, whether it's progress or not, the things we enjoy doing together. And, you know, this idea of inchstones I got from the, the uh, Fathers Network in Seattle, Washington, where, you know, when they meet they you know celebrate and brag about what their kids are doing and what they're doing with their kids they share their joys and sorrows for sure um, and you know right now uh, uh, with dr. Michael Hannon uh, we've started a father support group at Drexel University maybe we'll talk about that another time and you know we asked people to tell their story and you know it was really heavy in the room um, you know, a lot of strong feelings came out. And then I asked people to share, you know, the advances and the progress that their kids were making and the mood just changed just like that, you know. But, but you know, fathers needed to tell the whole thing. You know, mothers need to tell the whole thing. Now, one important difference that, uh, and I wanted to make this point uh, when you were talking earlier, that I think in the beginning, uh, mothers more than fathers often blame themselves. Did I do something wrong? Uh, did I work too long during the pregnancy? Did I eat the wrong thing? There's a lot of guilt that comes in the unwritten job description of mothers. And it's not that fathers don't have guilt. I mean, we often think we didn't do enough, but, but we're not as sort of held captive by the guilt that maybe it was me. And, you know, when I talk to moms, I, I it often takes years to get past that. And and that's not about accepting their child, it's about accepting themselves and and like letting go of this guilt that's often excessive. So I just, you know, wanted to honor that experience of moms as it's somewhat different.
0: Yeah, and and I would have liked to had time to go into the specific father stuff but maybe we will talk about that in another podcast as you alluded to but uh one one thing that was really funny is i went to a local support group for autism parents and um one of the women there is a grandmother raising her autistic grandson and said she got so sick of seeing everyone bragging about their kids on facebook they were bragging about this and that and she posted so and so pooped in the toilet today with a big smiley face and and she thought that was great and I thought that was great because that's huge that's huge for us when you know our kids might not be toilet trained till who knows how big they are right Right. and not only that it's just sort of sending a message to other parents like guess what your reality is really different than mine and um this is what I'm celebrating that's very different than what you're celebrating
1: right Right. I mean, I you know, in a in a support group I facilitated for years, we'd have a big celebration every time a kid pooped in the toilet. (laughs) Um, But but I would say to reassure people who are listening somewhat that if there's not a medical reason, that most kids with autism toilet train just a couple years later than the average, although sometimes it goes on longer. But um, most. The overwhelming majority of kids with autism just toilet train later, because of sensory differences and you know sometimes dietary stuff. Um, but but they all do toilet train. But it's an amazing celebration, <laughs> and it's great to have other parents to share it with.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, just a couple of points before our time wraps up here. I, I love the concept that you say we are building bridges, not walls, with the rest of the human spectrum. So you talk about different qualities that autistic kids have, and, and we often have them too. Uh, you know, we tap our fingers um, to regulate ourselves. We we do different types of things. And, you know, autistic kids might be bothered by tags on clothes. Well, guess what? So are we, maybe we don't like wool sweaters. So ex- describing these things, not as autistic behaviors, but they are all human behaviors. Um, I love that point that you bring up and and just bringing down these types of barriers.
1: Absolutely, and that's that's uh, points that Barry Presant uh, makes very well in his book, Uniquely Human. And um, it's just when you have so many of these that they get in the way of living that that it's then diagnostic in terms of the autism spectrum. But yes. absolutely, all these things are human behaviors. Uh, that are widely distributed. And when we understand that, we can make the connection with any, you know, virtually any person with autism. Uh, we can find common ground, common in our common humanity. And, you know, that's like my son's autism has really taught me a lot about being human. And, and I'm still learning um, as I should be.
0: And I was going to ask you actually to end on that note too, is could you describe a little bit about how your son has made you a better person? You said he's definitely made you a better person early on in the podcast. And, and one quote that you said to me was, um, it takes more out of you than you know you had and stuff you didn't know you
1: have. Right. It takes a lot out of us, a lot of effort. <clears throat> so, so, He made me more patient. He made me a better listener and observer, especially by being non-speaking. I had to, you know, pick up the nonverbal cues. Um, and I had to really tune into his needs in a way I otherwise would not have. And I had to really learn that not everything's fixable. Um, sometimes we need to just be um and you know being the grandchild of immigrants i thought you know i should be able to do anything you know and they thought i should be able to do anything but but that wasn't really true and so i had to give up you know being achievement oriented and figuring that i could solve any problem that came my way and find peace in the way things actually are. And be able to accept in relative comfort and live day to day uh, with things as they are. Not, not just my son's autism, but there's there's everyday challenges and I had to learn to, and I'm still learning, to live with them rel- in relative comfort and do what I can. So when I think about climate change, you know, I think about okay what can i do about it what's what's responsible for me to do um when i think about um helping parents and and people with autism i i try to think about well what can we do how can we make a difference uh and so this idea of making a difference versus changing fixing making it going away making it go away that's really big too much trying to fixing to be fixing things spoils the loving, and the loving is what makes the relationship tick. It's what drives everything. Um, so so there's been, a, and, and I've become more patient than I ever would have been, you know? Uh, I remember, you know, getting upset with my son and then looking in the mirror, mirror, mirror on the wall. I am my father after all. I swore I'd be more patient. Well, he taught me to be more patient. And I'm still learning
0: yeah absolutely it really is about the connection and that relationship because if you are so focused on the behavior and you know you're ten years old now or however old you should know better you should know how to do this like don't hit me don't kick me don't whatever instead I see you're really really frustrated right now you're struggling with something you don't have to say this, but you you can see, like my child obviously is struggling with something right now. What's going on? How can I support and make a difference instead of just expect them to suddenly behave the way I want them to? And that goes for any child, really. (laughs) Just meeting them where they're at and figuring out what's behind this behavior. Why is it happening? How can I connect with my child? My child feels understood, okay. You know, I didn't want to, you know, we hear from adult self-advocates, like, I didn't want to go clear the whole shelf off of the fridge. I didn't want to smack my parent in the head. I, my body did it. I was overwhelmed. I was dysregulated or whatever it is. So, um, I guess that to me, that, that's something that we always need to remind ourselves of when we get frustrated.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, I, and to be kind to ourselves, that we're human too. And, and some of these experiences really do challenge us at our, at our core. But they're also the lessons that are teaching us what we need to learn to grow.
0: Well, thank you. On that note, uh, I appreciate you taking the time with us and listeners. It's affectautism.com, A-F-F-E-C-T. Please go to the website and check the write-up, the blog post associated with this podcast where I'll put links to Dr. Nassif's books and some of the things we were talking about. And if you have comments or questions, feel free to post them or through the contact link at Affect Autism. And uh, thanks again. I can't thank you enough. Thank you. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through play.